You're listening to the Asking for a Friend podcast, an elder-led ministry of Believer's Baptist Church in Emory, Texas. The Asking for a Friend podcast exists as a weekly resource for the edification and knowledge of God's people. My name is Tyler Jones. I'm your host. Thanks for listening in, whoever you may be and wherever you may be. May the Lord bless this podcast to you as a means of grace for your spiritual growth. On the podcast today is Jason Rowland. He's the senior pastor and one of our elders of Believer's Baptist Church, and another of our elders, Philip Castleton. And we're going through the doctrines of grace this month. Um, this is something that, uh, I don't know, within the last month or so, uh, you guys visited with the new membership class. Um, and anyway, the the idea here is that we're going to go through these, and if you've been listening to the last couple of weeks, you'll understand what I'm saying here, but we are visiting a lot of scripture here, a lot of different places. Seems like we're jumping around a lot. Um, you know, anybody can do that and make a point, but for you to really truly understand it, you'd really need to get into the Bible, understand the context of these particular letters and um, that surround these particular um verses as well. So that's just something we wanted to emphasize going into this. Um, And with that, we're going to get to the question of the day, which is, what is limited atonement? This is the third part in the five-part series, and we have already talked about radical depravity, unconditional election, and so now particular redemption or definite atonement, or some call it limited atonement. So all of these words mean the same thing. And again, we want to go back to uh, church history briefly, because in 1609, Jacob Arminius died. And his followers then, in 1610, put his arguments on paper to uh, come against the biblical teaching that um, we call the doctrines of grace. In other words, they were they were wanting to present Joseph, uh, rather Jacob Arminius's teaching that um, human inability, unconditional election, um, particular redemption, irresistible grace, the preservation of the saints be changed to be conformed to his own view and so his own views. And so his followers became Armenians. And so when you talk about the debate between Calvinists and Armenians, you're talking about those who would be Calvinist or follow the Reformed tradition would be coming from um, a scriptural viewpoint. They would be coming from the apostolic teaching. The Armenians would be coming from what they feel is the apostolic teaching, uh, but it would be from the thoughts of Joseph Jacob Arminius primarily and his followers who perpetrated or um, um, continued, I should say, his particular teachings. Yeah, it's interesting that um, at the Diet of Worms or Worms or whatever, but uh, where a lot of this came to be, uh, keep in mind that Arminius and Calvin are both dead, right? right. So it was, it's interesting because, yeah, Arminius comes out, and these these people that are students or disciples of Arminius, they actually come out and come up with these statements that are, uh, in essence, um, uh, statements that in some way provide uh, a wrap-up or a, a synopsis of, of, of Jacob Arminius' teachings, right, his theology. 
And they were so unbiblical that many of uh, uh, people who had trained or studied under um, John Calvin came back and responded and said no. And they responded with what is now known as the doctrines of grace. These five points were actually a, re- a, a response to an unbiblical uh, putting forth by Jacob Arminius, you know. And it's, it's, it's an amazing thing that, you know, we have reverted for the most part back to um, the Pelagian idea that um, the, 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 the fall hasn't affected man in, 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 in totality or uh, that it's had some kind of limited effect which leaves man in some kind of um, state where he is still capable of responding in a positive way to God. So in 1689, uh, I'm sorry, in 1618, mm-hmm. um, there was a, a synod that met in Holland and it was for the purpose of examining Jacob Arminius' views and the the um, followers of Jacob Arminius, their um, views. And um, in the Synod, it was held um, over a seven-month period, and they unanimously rejected the teachings of Arminius as being contrary to the Word of God. Yes. But, of course, they've risen again into the popular thinking and the popular preaching and teaching um, in the American culture anyway. Well, what they do is they actually appeal to the natural man, you know, so they they appeal to his pride and his self and his flesh um, in a way that says, um, you know, you can offer, uh, even in your lost and sinful and natural state, you can offer something that God will accept. And so we like that. We, we like the fact that I don't need to be helped in any way. Um, you know, I don't, I don't need anything. I don't need even life. Uh, the testimony of Scripture is that I'm spiritually dead pre-Christ, right? Um, uh, pre-regeneration. So I don't even need that. I, even in my dead state, I, I have something to offer, right? I'm, or I'm not totally dead. I'm kind of dead. Um, I'm, I'm, maybe I'm just, you know, in a, in a coma or something, right? right? I mean, there's still some kind of life there and I have something I can offer to God, but th- that's not the testimony of scripture. Right. Contrary really to the, at least Southern Baptist, um, thought, and we speak to that because that is our tribe. Contrary to the popular thought though, uh, that Calvinism is wrong and it's evil and it's, um, unbiblical. Um, we can actually say that Calvinism is a synonym for biblical Christianity. Biblical doctrines of salvation, yes. Right. So we could we could actually say... Um, that our tribe has left the reservation. Yes. That's what we could say. <laughs> yeah. And we could say that Paul was a Calvinist. Uh, we could say that uh, Augustine was a Calvinist. Or we could just say that Calvin was a Paulist. A Paulist. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Paul, uh, Calvinist, uh, Calvin was um, biblical. Yeah. yeah. Pauline. Yeah. yeah. And many for many years... And Johannian. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Because John and Paul are in, in complete agreement on yes, all this yes. stuff. <laughs> and for many years, Calvinist doctrine was the dominant position among Protestants. Uh, the denominations and the groups that were represented in the founding of our nation Episcopalian, Puritans, Pilgrims, Presbyterian, Baptists, they were all Calvinistic. Right. They were all reformed in their doctrine. 
even at the time of the American Revolution, an overwhelming majority of the people in the United States were Calvinists. Um, as we just said today, it's substantially different. Yes. Um, but that's why we're going through these doctrines of grace. And Tyler made a reference to a membership class that we just did recently. I believe we had um, around 14 people that were exploring membership um, in our congregation. And we make sure that we talk about these five doctrines of grace. We do it in such an abbreviated format, though it was about 45 minutes that we do, because we want to be clear, this is where where we feel is best um, biblically. Uh, We want to be clear that what we teach uh, is um, open. We're not trying to hide anything. We're not trying to be deceptive. And we're not even saying to people, you have to believe this or you can't be a member. So we presented in our membership class as um, part of our uh, exploring and examining um, Believer's Baptist Church for those who are looking at membership. So let's talk about this particular redemption. And you've got a definition from Steve Lawson. Steve Lawson. Mm-hmm. It says, in the fullness of time, God the Father sent his son to enter this fallen world on a mission to redeem his people. He was born of a virgin without a sin nature to live a sinless life. Jesus was born under the divine law so that he would fully obey it on behalf of disobedient sinners who have repeatedly broken it. This act of obedience of Christ fulfilled all the righteous demands of the law. By keeping the law, the Son of God achieved a perfect righteousness, which is reckoned to believing sinners, so that they are declared righteous or justified before God. This sinless life of Jesus further qualified him to go to the cross and die in the place of guilty, hell-bound sinners. On the cross, Jesus bore the unmitigated wrath of the Father for the sins of his people. In this vicarious death, the Father transferred to His Son all the sins of those who would ever have believed in Him. As a sin-bearing sacrifice, Jesus died a substitutionary death in the place of God's elect. On the cross, He propitiated the righteous anger of God toward the elect. By the blood of the cross, Jesus reconciled the holy God to sinful man, establishing peace between the two parties. In His redeeming death, He purchased His bride his elect people, out of bondage to sin, and he set her free. Jesus' death did not merely make all mankind potentially savable, nor did his death simply achieve a hypothetical benefit that may or may not be accepted. Neither did his death merely make all mankind redeemable. Instead, Jesus actually redeemed a specific people through his death, securing and guaranteeing their salvation. Not a drop of Jesus' blood was shed in vain. He truly saved all for whom he died. This doctrine of definite or particular atonement is sometimes called limited atonement. So to put it briefly, Christ's redeeming work was intended to save the elect only. Yes, And actually secured that salvation for those elect. Mm -hmm. His death was a substitutionary endurance of the penalty Mm -hmm. that they deserve, the elect deserve, but he received in their place, again, that being the elect 
So Christ's redemption secured everything that was necessary for the salvation of the elect. Yes. Now, the opposite view of that, the Armenian view of that, um, would say that Christ died for everyone. Mm-hmm. The, that is that, that his work on the cross made it possible for everyone to be saved. It did not secure salvation for everyone, but it made it possible. And he died so that um, his death enabled God to pardon sinners on the condition that they believe. If they believe, it was uh, efficacious. Right. Well, that's this is problematic for, for several reasons. Um, first of all, uh, it, it destroys the idea of vicarious substitutionary atonement. Because if God died in the stead of, or as a substitute for, then then those sins are dealt with. And this would even go as far as the, the idea that um, that the the application of Christ's atonement to my behalf on the on uh, predicated uh, or applied to me because of belief um, will believe uh, unbelief in Christ is sin. If Christ died on the cross as a vicarious substitute for the sin of men, he also died for the sin of unbelief, right? So. Either he did die for unbelief or he didn't die for unbelief. If he didn't die for unbelief, then then the Arminian can't be saved, right? Because um, even if he chose to believe, he's still got a lingering sin, right, that hasn't been dealt with. Or it has been dealt with in Christ, in which case, if they died for all men, including the sin of unbelief, all men are going to be saved. Mm-hmm. Both are problematic. Um, so... Uh, that being said, um, and it, it, like I said again, it does damage to the idea of substitutionary vicarious atonement. If he died as a substitute and he took my sin, then I no longer have to pay for that sin. Right. Right. If he, uh, if he was in my stead, then I don't have to be. That is the point of substitution. And um, uh, the idea that um, imputation, you know, his, his righteousness to me and and my sin to him uh, is dealt with. That's how he can, according to Romans 3, declare me righteous and do it justly, God. Because Jesus has actually dealt with, in a real sense, my sin. Not a hypothetical. Because he, he can actually be just and the justifier. Right. Why? Because it, Christ did. He did become. He did take on as a substitute my sin. He dealt with it in full, and therefore God is just in declaring me just. Right. One of the um, the um, illustrations that I, I think might be helpful in understanding in this uh, understanding this comes from I believe it's Donald Gray Barnhouse who tells the story of about the man that is sitting on the dock. Um, uh, out into the ocean. He's sitting on a pier out in the ocean. And um, he falls into the ocean. And another man who is walking by sees this man's desperate plight. He's actually drowning. Mm-hmm. drowning. And so the man jumps in and actually saves him. And in the process of saving him, he himself drowns. Mm-hmm. Um, but... His willingness to save that man uh, actually accomplished the purpose in which he jumped for for which he jumped in the water. Right. He actually saved the man. 
now put that man back out on the end of the pier in the in the ocean, and he's sitting there, and a man walks by and sees him sitting on the dock, and he thinks this man might fall off, and so he runs and he dives into the ocean and he drowns. And the man is still sitting on the dock. <laughs> and so the, it accomplished nothing. Yeah. Um, and, you know, maybe all illustrations lack. Sure. But I think that it speaks to it. Well, you know, what's, yeah, what is interesting, though, is it, it, you're, you're right in the sense that it, what does it accomplish if it, if, it, if it has no intent? Right. I mean, it seems like the atonement was just a, a broad brush attempt from the Arminian perspective to, um, you know, and, and this is what they mean by make men savable, right? right? It doesn't actually save necessarily anybody. I mean, it makes all men savable, but what if all men refused? Well, then God died in vain, right? right? So um, it, it doesn't actually save anybody from their perspective. We don't believe that's the biblical perspective. We believe that the Bible says that God died, and when he died, he did it with a purpose and with the intent and with a, a effect, right. and that it actually accomplishes the salvation for whom it was intended. So he doesn't die to make men savable, but he actually dies and is resurrected for the salvation of his people. And he actually says as much in Romans 4 when he says he was raised for our justification. Right. Right. Second Corinthians 5, 21. Mm-hmm. For our sake, he, God, made him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin. Right. So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Right. Or, or Titus two fourteen, Who gave himself, that is Jesus, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. First mm-hmm. Peter three eighteen. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. And those are just a few examples of the fact that it was efficacious. Jesus' yeah. death accomplished what it was intended to accomplish. Right. Remember, we've talked in the previous podcast when we talked about radical depravity and unconditional election about this being a Trinitarian work. Mm-hmm. So if the Father elected a people right. from before time, then the Son has to secure those people. Mm-hmm. And His atonement then has to actually have effect Mm-hmm. It has to accomplish yes. the purpose for which the elect people and, are chosen. And then we would recognize that the third person, God the Holy Spirit, in time uh, pr- uh, produces regeneration and brings those people to that salvation. So the Father um, chooses, the Son procures, the Holy Spirit applies. Right. right? And and we understand that they all have uh, a unity of purpose. In fact, let's go to John 6, because it, it makes this point for us, I think. Right. Okay? John 6, um, he's... He has uh, just fed the 5,000. The people are wanting the the, um, the Jesus social system program because they're wanting to be fed. Jesus chides them for not recognizing their spiritual need um, for the, the, the bread of life. But this is what he says in, in verse 30, uh, 35. Jesus said, I'm the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said that you have seen me and you don't believe. 
And then look what he says, verse 37, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. I've come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it the last day. And we'll stop there. We'll come back in a second. But let's just walk through that again. Verse 37, all that the Father gives me. Now we see a people, right? We've got a distinct group of people here, a group that the Father has given the Son. All that the Father gives me. And it's a totality of that group. It's not some of the people that the Father gives, right? But all of them. All of, the group, all of this particular group, whoever they are, we'll call them the elect because that's the way the Bible refers to them. All of this elect group that the Father gives the Son, that group will come. And, 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 the, and the Son won't refuse them. And it says whoever comes, they won't be cast out. The Father, the Son will accept them because they have the same purpose in mind. And that's exactly what he's going to say in the, the very next verse. He says, I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Now, what he's not saying here is that him and the Father have distinctly different purposes. What he's saying is he doesn't have, specifically what he's saying is, I don't have a purpose that is distinct from the Father's. I came down in perfect unity and in perfect harmony to do what he wanted me to do. I came down with a purpose, and that was to accomplish my Father's will. Do you want to know what that is? He says that here too. And this is the will of him who sent me, verse 39, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up the last day. So we can see that we've got this group of elect that the Father gives the Son, the Son will not refuse them. He brings them in. And because his intent and the Father's are the same, they have the same purpose. The Father didn't set aside a group of people and Jesus say, but Father, I want to die for all people, right? I want to make all people savable. It wasn't his intent. His intent was to take that group of people and procure them, you know, accomplish their salvation. And then it says here that he will raise them the last day, meaning he will bring them all the way to the end of their salvation. So it, it is a, a unity and purpose that we see here, mm -hmm. right? right? The son and the father have the very same purpose in the atonement. The father gives a people, the son saves the people, and he brings them all the way to the end of their salvation. And then it, you, the argument continues on, but you go down... Um, he actually calls these people those who would look and believe. That's how they're described in the next couple of verses. But he gets over here in verse 44, and he says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up the last day. So now this text says that um, the natural man, a person outside of that group, cannot come. They don't have the capacity to come. The only people who will ever have the capacity to come are those whom the Father draws. And if we think that the Father is drawing on men, well, he's also raising up the same group of people the last day. So if he's drawing on men, he's saving on men, right? But this would be a contradiction in, in, because he's already said that there is a group that the Father has given the Son, and the Son is going to raise them up the last day. He's not going to reject any of them. He came with the same purpose the Father has. And then here in verse 44, uh, that group excludes those that the Father doesn't draw. But those ones the Father does draw, he will raise them up the last day. It's the same group of people. So this group that the, that the Father draws is the same group that the, Father, uh, that the Son procures and keeps 
and raises. It's the same group of people throughout the argument. So this idea that Jesus came and died for the sins of the world, yet it was God's intention to only give a group of people. Or the idea that that the that the Father intended for the whole world to be saved, and Jesus died for the whole world, and the Holy Spirit actually works salvation in only some people. None of those things gel. It would mean that at least one, if not two, of the members of the Trinity um, are are in, or, or have, are in a contradiction with the other. Right. It it can't be. I mean, they're they're in one purpose. They're one in nature. All of these things. They're distinct in persons, but they they're they're in harmony all the time. They all have unique purpose. So we 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 should recognize that the atoning work of Christ was for a particular people, and um, and he goes on again in sixty five at the end of this argument and restates exactly what he said again. And this is why I told you no one can come unless it is granted by the Father. Now, why would, if it was the Father's goal to save every human being, right? Right. If he sent his son to die for every single human being, why would he then deny access to some of those human beings? That's an inconsistency that you can't make sense of with the plain teaching of the text. Now, we can read things into it and say, well, it doesn't mean this and it doesn't mean that and it has to mean this over here because we have presuppositions that we want to read onto the text. But the text says what it says. And if we just go to and let it speak, then we have to go, why? Right? We can go back to John 3. This argument is not, John 6 is not the only place in this in this gospel that talks like this. In John 3, um, and uh, in John 3, 8, it specifically says that those who are born again, by the way, the work of the Spirit here, right? right? We're talking about, does the Holy Spirit call all men, draw all men? Does he save all men? Are people savable? It says, no, the Holy Spirit in John chapter 3 is like the wind who blows where it wishes. It wishes. It, the will of the Spirit is involved here, right? So is the Spirit doing a work? Is the Spirit's will distinctly different from the Father's will? Or the Son's will? No. It says everyone who is born again is born again of the Spirit who acts upon that person as he wills. You read earlier in, 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 a, in another podcast that it has been, all authority has been given to Christ to give eternal life to whom he wills. Mm-hmm. So do we believe that the Father's will and the Son's will and the Holy Spirit's will are distinct? Is the Holy Spirit working regeneration in someone that Jesus didn't die for? Or did Jesus die for all people and the Holy Spirit's only working regeneration in some of those people? These things don't make sense. The only thing that makes sense of, of all these texts is the fact that the intent of the Father was the same as the intent of the Son, which is what it's testified to here in John 6, and that the work of the Spirit in John 3 is in, is in harmony with these things. And so what you are, what you are, what you are saying is that um, regeneration precedes faith. Yes. So if a, a person is dead in their trespasses and sin, they're radically depraved, then they are elect, and Jesus has come to secure their election. Mm-hmm. So then how then does that work in time? And you're saying that the Spirit 
brings life to that person. The wind blows wherever it will, as the illustration that Jesus gives in John 3, and that illustrates uh, the work of the Spirit to regenerate a person so that they can respond in faith. It's not that people do not respond in faith and obedience. It's that, that God has to do a work to, to cause that response. Yes, and so we want to be clear that the salvation that would um, be accomplished has to be done by the power of the Spirit's work. And again, that's the Unitarian um, work all tied together. Trinitarian. The Trinitarian. Yeah. I'm sorry, I, I said Unitarian. That's okay. Trinitarian work tied together. The Trinitarian unity is what yes. I would want to say. Right. Yeah. Well, you know, it's the testimony, and I, I'm going to be in John a fair amount here, but John 1 says that it's not of will, but, but of God. John 3 says the Holy Spirit works in whom he wills. John 5 says that Jesus has been given authority to give eternal life to whom he wills. In John 6, it says that no one can come unless the Father is given. Jesus procures, brings those people to the end of their salvation, that it has to be granted by the Father for a person to come. In John 8, we have the same kind of testimony. I, just to give some 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 walk all the way through this text, um, in, in John eight forty seven, whoever is of God hears the words of God, Right? So we, we have the same kind of setup here. God has a people, and those particular people hear the testimony of God. They hear it. They have ears to hear. They have eyes to see. They, they hear the testimony, and they come. That is what it means that they are granted by God to come, that God has enabled them. He has given them spiritual eyes, spiritual ears. They hear the testimony of the gospel, and they respond. The reason why you don't hear them John says about the Pharisees is you are not of God. Okay. It, you cannot come unless it's been granted by God for you to come. The reason that the God's people hear is because he's given them ears. The reason you don't hear is because you're not God's people. That's the testimony. That's exactly what John 10 says. Well, that's where I was going. This is the consistency. In John 10, he calls his own sheep by name. This is verse three and leads them out. He has brought out all his own. He goes before them and the sheep follow him. Why? They know his voice. A stranger they won't follow, but they will flee from him for they do not know the voice of strangers. That's um, uh, verse five. Uh, verse 11. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. There's a particular group of people for whom Christ has died. Verse 14, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. There's a granting of the father to know, right? Same as John 6. Just as the father knows me and I know the father, I laid my down my life for the sheep and I have other sheep that are not of this fold. He's saying, I lay down my life for the sheep. And by the way, that's not only Jews, that's also Gentiles. I'm bringing them all in one fold. I'm bringing them together. That's the point. You told me, I told you, and you do not believe, verse 25, the works that I do in my Father's name, I bear witness about me, verse 26, but you do not believe because you're not among my sheep. Here he doesn't say, you're not my sheep because you don't believe. That would be the typical Arminian interpretation of that. Mm -hmm. It's not what it says. It says that you don't believe because you're not my, um, you're, you don't believe because you're not my sheep. It's not that you're not my sheep because you don't believe. That's the way most of us think. Well, I'm not sheep right now, but if I choose to believe, then I'll become a sheep. He's saying, no. The reason that you don't believe is because you don't have the ears to hear. You're not you, a sheep. You don't have the spirit to work in you. You're not a sheep. You're a goat, and you will never hear. This is the testimony. 
He continues, verse 27, my sheep hear my voice. I know them. They follow me. I give them eternal life. This is the argument in John 10, John 17, right? I mean, this, this argument continues on and on and on. It's a consistent argument all the way through. John 17, and this is the one that actually had people, we had people leave the church over this text. I read it and they left. It's like, your problem's not with me. <laughs> your problem's with the scriptures. John 17, in high priestly prayer, this is what he says in verse 2. Since you have, or let's start in verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that your son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh. Now here, if Christ has authority over all flesh, right? He can do with flesh, the human will. He can do with humankind however he wants. And, and, and it's the testimony of most people that he wants to save all. You'd think he would. But look what it says in the text. You've given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you've given him. Not to all men. All right. You've given him authority over all flesh. And, that, and, and what is encompassed in that is to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. This is eternal life that they know you. So they can't know you unless I bring them to you. He's going to say that again here in a minute, right? All right. The only true God, Jesus Christ, I glorified you on earth. Listen to this. Having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. He hasn't even gone to the cross. He hasn't even gone to the cross yet. And it's such a sure deal. He can say it's accomplished. It's finished. They won't be lost. Past tense. Done. I, ha I have accomplished all that you've given me to do. Um, and now the Father glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Look at verse 6. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours. You gave them to me. They've kept your word. Now, it, the amazing thing, let's stop for just a second. The amazing thing here is if it's the intent of the Father and the Son, if it's the intent of the Trinitarian God to save all men, explain to me this. In verse 6, I have manifested your name to the people you gave me out of the world. How come he didn't manifest um, the Father to every person? It, it, why? Because it seems to be effectual. When he does it, it accomplishes their, their salvation, right? Mm -hmm. Why doesn't he do it with all? We ought to ask ourselves these questions. He doesn't. Look at, and then look at the pronouns. They have kept your word. They know that everything you have given me is from you. I have given them the words you've gave me. They have received them and come to know in truth that I came from you. They have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. There's intercession. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you've given me, for they are yours. He's made a distinction, right? Not all are gods in that sense, Right? They are yours. All are mine are yours. Yours are mine. I'm glorified in them and no longer in the world. They are in the world. I'm keeping uh, you uh, holy, Father. I keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are. Listen to this. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I've guarded them and not one has been lost except the son of destruction, which so the scriptures might be fulfilled. He goes on to say in verse 8, 19, for their sake, the same group of people, watch the pronouns all the way through, for their sake, I consecrate myself. He's talking about his, his, his 
um, atoning work. He's about to go to the cross. He's setting himself aside as holy to God to accomplish God's, the Father's purposes. That's what, he, that's what holy means. That's what consecrate means. I'm setting myself apart to do your purposes. And it, he says, it's for them. It's for their sake that I do this that they may be sanctified in truth. The only way that, that God's people will be set aside is if Christ himself sets himself aside. That's it, right? He goes on to argue, I, I, I'm not going to keep going here, but I, I want to make this point at the end of the chapter, because this is the same argument all the way through. In verse 26, I made known to them your name. If it was God's intent, the Father and the Son, the Spirit, if it was the intent to save every man, if it was the intent to die for every man, if the atoning work actually made all men savable, then why did God, the God the Son, here in verse 26, not make known God the Father to them? Why? There's no answer to that question except for it wasn't in their intent and purposes. The whole chapter spells that out. And, and it's, it's shameful, it really is shameful that we think we do, we think we are saving God's reputation by saying he was so loving that he died for every single person. God doesn't need help with his reputation from us. It's a shame that we can't let scripture speak for itself and say, if he's okay and it was his intent, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit's intent to give a people to the Son, the Son procuring a people, and the Spirit applying that salvation to a particular people and not everybody. Why can't we be satisfied with that? Let me push back for a minute. Push back. What would you say to the person who says, Repent! No, that's what I would say. <laughs> what would you say to the person who's reading this and says, Well, this is talking about Jesus' disciples. Well, it also says... I not only pray for them, but also for all of those who are going to come to faith through their word. Verse 20. Yeah, he is saying, um, it is very clear that I am talking about the elect, period. And I'm talking about, in the immediate context, these 11, but in the broader context, all those who through their testimony are going to come. Right. Okay, so now I'm going to throw the really hard one at you. I'm ready. What about, Philip, what about John three sixteen? Man, let's go there. John 3.16. We're in the Gospel of John, we so are. I'm going to nail you on this one. There is no way around what this verse says. You're right. It, there is no way around what it says. I'll agree with you. It probably doesn't say what you think it means. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm reading I know it for that. what it is. I know. Let's do it. Let's just begin. Oh, let's just begin in verse 8. Well, I already mentioned this one, but let's begin in verse 8. So let's give it some context, because there are no verses in the Bible. There are paragraphs. <laughs> right. The wind... The verses, seriously, the verses are not inspired. No. The chapter the, the, divisions yeah. are not inspired. Yeah. Go ahead. In verse 8. Well, verse 7. Do not marvel, right? He's talking to Nicodemus here. Do not marvel that I said you must be born again. Look what it says about being hold born it, again. Hold it. I'm sorry. The first numbers yes. are not inspired. I understood what you meant. Yeah, but yeah. just for clarity. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that's the not, first that's numbers, okay. the chapter division. Yeah, we all knew you were a heretic as soon as you asked about John 3, 16. So we, we, no, I'm just kidding. Um, all right, let's start all over. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind, he's talking about the Holy Spirit here, the wind blows where it wishes. You hear its sound. You do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. 
Okay, let's make, make, make sure we're clear. The Holy Spirit does a work. You don't know where it comes from, where it goes. You don't control the wind. You hear, it's a, you hear it wind. You hear it beating on your house. You see the leaves as it distributes through, your, you know, blows them off the tree and distributes them through your yard. All of those things are true about the wind, but you don't control it. That's the illustration given here. And he says that is the reality of everyone who is born again that the Spirit does a work in. The ones that the Spirit regenerates, you have no control over who or where or how it happens. The Spirit does what the Spirit does. Okay. That's start there and work through it. Nicodemus said, how can these things be? Jesus answered, are you the teacher of Israel? You do not understand these things. In essence, Nicodemus is saying, I'm steeped in legalism, man. I have, I have a lot to offer God. How am I supposed to start over? Right? How am I supposed to offer something, man? Anyway, verse 11, truly, truly, or verily, 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 I say to you, we speak what we know and bear witness to what we've seen. You do not receive our testimony. In essence, Jesus is saying, it's not, an ev- it's not a problem of evidence, Nicodemus. You know what I've said. You just don't like it. Remember, this is a Pharisee who is steeped in legalism and loves self-made righteousness. And he's saying, it is unbearable for you to think that regeneration is the key to entering the kingdom. Right? Because that's what he said. That you must be born again to see or enter the kingdom. That regeneration is the key to entering the kingdom and not your works. You don't receive what I say. If I've told you earthly things and you do not believe, how would you believe if I told you heavenly things? If I'm going to talk to you about salvation, you're never going to understand the rest of it. You don't even get salvation and that happens to people here, right? No one has ascended to heaven except the one who's descended from heaven, the son of man. This is verse 13. Jesus is saying, I'm the only one with the information you need, Nicodemus. I'm the only one who's come from heaven. I'm giving you the truth and you won't listen to me. Verse 14, and then he gives this illustration from the Old Testament about Moses being lifting up the serpent on the rock and saving people, and that's the illustration he gets. That's where the conversation ends, and John begins his commentary on what has just happened, right? He's talking in context about the illustration that Jesus has just given about the provision that he has made. He's put a serpent on a pole, he's held it up, and all those who are snake bite look to the provision God has made and they are saved from their snake bites. The illustration is we are all snake bit by sin and the only provision that God offers isn't our works, but to look to Christ who's been put on a pole. And if you can trust in that work to save you from sin, it's the only option you got. That's the illustration he's given. Verse 16. This is John's divinely inspired commentary. Yes. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever, and the word is pos in Greek, it means all. I don't care if it says whoever, but whoever, because people take this verse and read it solely without any context, think that this is an invitation, and it's not. It's a declaration. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever or all believing ones, all those who believe in him, won't perish but have eternal life. Here's here's what's being said in John 3.16, that this work of provision that God has done was so effectual and accomplishes, and it's a, it perfectly accomplishes uh, its work that um, when God sent his son, it so did a number and it and perfectly affected the number that all the believing ones, not a single one will be lost. Every single one who believes will have eternal life. That's a declaration. That is not an invitation. That is a declaration. All the believing ones saved. Hallelujah, right? Right. 
It doesn't, and there is no statement here about who can come or who can't come. That's the way most people read it. John 6, which we've already read, tells us who can come. The Those that whom the, the Father gave. And the ones who the Father grants. Mm-hmm. Right? Right. That's who can come. This makes no statement about the capacity of man to come. This is a statement about the reality of the salvation that has been procured for all the believing ones. Period. So there's John 3.16. Right. Well... Again, we need to wrap this up. But we can't just yet because I need to, we need to go one more text. Can we go one more text really quickly if I work fast? Yes. I'll read it really fast. fast. Okay, Second Peter 3. Oh, because, oh, I meant to bring that one up. And yeah. I say this because most people are going to use this as the, I, the well, what about this one? I've got you here. I want to well, read it. Read it. Second the Peter Lord 3. is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, mm-hmm. but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish but that all should reach repentance. Yeah, so that's usually the response, and most people read it this way. He wasn't willing that any should perish. What do you do with that? Well, that's not what the text says. It's not. Start in verse 1, and I'll read it, and I'll read it quick, and I'll just make a couple of points so that you could... Verse 1 of chapter 3. Verse 1 of chapter 3. Second Peter. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. This is now the second letter that I am writing to you, beloved. There's a point we need to make sure. He's writing to letter to who? Beloved, the, the beloved. beloved. Okay, in both of them, I'm stirring you up, uh, your sincere mind, by way of reminder that you, the beloved, should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandments of the Lord and Savior through the apostles. Knowing this first of all, that scoffers will come. Now he's made a distinction between two groups. He's writing the letter to the beloved about the scoffers, scoffers. right? Come in the last days with scoffing, knowing their own sinful scoffers, own sinful desires. They, the scoffers, uh, will say, where's the promise of his coming? Ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they, the scoffers, deliberately overlooked this fact. The heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of the water and through the water by the word of God, and that by means of the uh, world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved. Again, he's back to the group that he's writing a letter to. That with one day, uh, that with the Lord, one day is a thousand years, and a thousand years is, is one day. The Lord is not so slow, so, so, so slow, I can't say it. <laughs> the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward who? You. Not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. He's already just made a distinction between these groups, the beloved and the scoffers, and now he said he's patient toward you, not willing that any of you should perish. There's a category, right? But that all of you should reach repentance. Here's here's what's being put forth. There's scoffers coming, beloved. Listen to me, beloved. You want to know why these scoffers think that, that, that judgment isn't coming and why I'm telling you that judgment hasn't already come? He said, remember, judgment is coming. God had already destroyed the world once in a flood. But let me tell you why judgment hasn't come the second time just yet. Because he loves his people, beloved. He's long-suffering toward you, beloved. Those who are in Christ, the elect. Not willing that a single one of his elect, right, 
should perish. The very same argument, John 6, John 17, John 3, John 8, John 10, the same argument that they've all made, he's making here. He's not willing that even one of his beloved would perish. So he has prolonged or he has put off. He has not come the second time in judgment to judge the world, not willing that a single one of you would be lost. That's what's being said here. But we always forget the long-suffering toward you. Because there's a context there. If we start in the beginning and work our way through, follow the pronouns, you realize that he's a particular group of people that he's talking to and he's talking about. And so if I said, hey, let's all go eat lunch, I don't mean every single person on earth. There's a context. I'm talking about all the people in this room. Let's all go eat lunch, right? Are you buying? Well, I was, but <laughs> we're done. But, but do you understand? That's what he's saying here. And he's saying he is the context when he says all here. And by the way, it's the same thing done in... Um, in Second Timothy, uh, or First Timothy two four, which is another argument they try to say. They say, well, he says, make prayers and intercessions for all men, and not he wants all men to be saved. And well, he's uh, from the beginning of that context, he establishes the all to be all categories of men, because he, then he says the reason that you pray, well, you wouldn't break out the local phone book and pray through every single name. That's not what he's saying. He's saying all categories of men. Then he says kings and those in authority so that, now here's the purpose, so that we can live quiet and peaceable lives, right? So you're praying for all kinds of men, (laughs) even those in authority, so that you can live quiet and peaceable lives because God may grant them repentance ultimately and he's not, and he's wanting all men to be saved. All Kinds of men. He is going to, through the prayers and, and, and evangelistic efforts of his people, he is going to bring even people way up in authority, kings and monarchs and, and, and civil governments. He's going to bring people in those positions to him. So pray for them. Right. That's the, that's the context. If we, if we just avoid context and take verses and use them willy-nilly however we want, well, then we can have a theology that says whatever we want. Right. Well, we began this particular podcast talking about Calvinism versus Arminianism. And I hate to use the word versus because those are theological categories that have been established by those who um, want to, in both camps, I, I believe they're sincere in wanting to interpret the Scripture. And the Armenian view has come to this interpretation, and the Calvinist view has come to this interpretation. And we fall heavily on the Calvinist interpretation and believe that to be better in understanding Scripture, better in understanding um, all of the different aspects of Christian life, evangelism, prayer, better in understanding who God is. So we want to be careful that if you're listening that you don't feel some kind of contempt toward you uh, if you don't hold these things, we don't want you to feel like it is um, undermining you in some way. I, I just don't want the listener to feel that way. We're doing this because we feel this is the best way. We feel this is the best way for um, believers to grow in grace and knowledge and to live in grace and knowledge. That doesn't mean that we're trying to be prideful, uh, self-righteous, in any way, uh, again, condemning those who would be following falling into the theological category of Armenianism. Um, even if it's an error. Even if it's an error. And some would say that it is error. Oh, I, I say that. No. I say that. I think it's wrong, 
but I, w- w- these two things can't be both right. right. They can't so be. if I, it, by necessity, if I hold to one as true, then the other one I believe is wrong. Um, I wouldn't be, by the way, I didn't start here. And I don't think you did either. No. We we both would have started in the Armenian camp. Yes. Um, in that sense, uh, we are we are here by conviction that the Scripture actually says this, and um, and I actually kind of came kicking and screaming into it. I mean, you know, so I, it wasn't something that um, that I was particularly drawn to when when I when it became a reality to me. Right. Um, I kind of uh, came to this the point where it was so obvious that I either had to, well, I recognized that I, I wasn't arguing with the preacher. I was arguing with the scripture. Right. And that's when I, I just went, well, if, if it is the scripture, then I either subject myself to it and, or I'm in rebellion to it. So that's why I hold this view is because of my conviction. I believe it's what the Bible says. I don't hold it because I want to be um, dis- distinct from everybody and be argumentative. I hold this view because I believe it's biblical. Right. This would be the minority view, by the way. Sure. And so it's hard to hold this it view. It used to be the, the, the majority view, oh, yeah, but the, it has changed. As we said in the beginning at this, of this podcast, it was the majority view. Now it's the minority view. And to hold this with conviction... Mm-hmm. Is difficult, but I am thankful for the grace that was extended to me, the sanctifying grace to come to these things over time uh, and learn these things um, after reading and discussion and prayer and thinking uh, thoughtfully. And and that may be where some of our listeners are thinking through these things, trying to uh, wrap their minds around it, trying to think uh, biblically and rightly. I would say that most who would listen to this podcast want to think biblically about it, want to think um, rightly and elevate God, and want to think properly about salvation and grace and uh, God's work in saving people. Um, So that's my point. I I just want us to... um, I want us to be firm on our conviction because this is really where I think that we uh, come down and we and we do it. I want to do it with compassion. I want to do it with grace, recognizing that, that others are learning and growing in these things. So um, to wrap it up, we're talking about particular redemption. We've already talked about radical depravity. We've talked about unconditional election. And so now we need to talk about the um, efficacious call. So we talked a little bit about this regenerating work, and so now there's a call that goes out to the elect, that the elect hear um, and respond. So we'll talk about that in the next podcast. Thanks for listening to the Asking for a Friend podcast. If what you've heard today has been helpful to you, please subscribe. On behalf of the elders of BBC, I invite you to a worship service at Believer's Baptist Church this coming Sunday. The Bible study hour begins at 9.15 and the worship service begins at 10.30. Grace and peace.